Hey everybody, thank you for joining episode 25 of The Green Life. Today's episode is all about the body. Yes, anatomy and physiology, but not from a boring place, rather from a yoga perspective. I have here Matthew Huey, who's a yoga teacher as well as an author, and he just released his first book with Dr. Andrew McGonagall called The Physiology of Yoga. Matthew has been teaching yoga since 2005, and he teaches anatomy and physiology in many teacher training courses, as well as providing mentoring and professional development for yoga teachers. While studying biology in college, Matt discovered the joy of movement when he enrolled in a dance class and then a yoga class. A few years later, he changed track and went on to complete a Bachelor of Arts degree in dance science from California State University at Long Beach. I think that's a very good place to study. He then completed yoga teacher training, Pilates, TRX, and Thai massage. And in 2021, he completed a Master's of Science degree in sport, health, and exercise science at Brunel University in London. He focused on exercise physiology and pain science. His master's research centered on the impact of yoga teachers' language on their students. I met Matt in London when we were working in the same studio, and as a yoga teacher, I can totally understand what he's talking about and where he comes from, and his work is wonderful, as well as much needed in the yoga community. As teachers, we need to understand what we're saying and why, and this is a great way to learn it. So without further ado, let's dive into the beautiful world of our body with Matthew. Hey Matt, thank you for being on The Green Life today. How are you? Yeah, doing very well, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. First of all, I'm really excited about your book, so congratulations. Uh, you and Andrew McGonagall have done a great job. I bought the book, but of course it's not ready in Europe yet, so um, thank you for sending me a copy. And um, it's going to be a really interesting um, one to have for everybody, and we're going to talk about that, but congratulations. It's such a good piece of resource you know, to have at home if you're interested in uh, in your body, if you're a teacher or not, it uh, doesn't matter, like if you're a yoga teacher or not. It's um, it's really, it's actually a book that people could use when they study medicine or nutrition because it really goes deep into uh, anatomy and physiology. So I, I love that. Um, so well done. Well, that's very kind and thank you. Yeah, it, it was a lot of work, but it's amazing to have the product at the end of it, you know? So um, yeah, I'm very, honored to have been part of the project and and I'm proud of it too I'm happy to say yeah and you are in London but Andrew is in uh, LA yeah so I'm actually originally from California he's originally from uh, Northern Ireland Ireland which is part of the United Kingdom Um, and now I've moved from California to the UK and he's moved from the UK to California, so we've swapped. <laughs> yeah, you did a switcheroo. That's awesome. Yeah, exactly. And by the way, now it makes sense that his uh, surname McGonagall rem- reminds me of a teacher from Hogwarts in Harry Potter. So for the Harry Potter fans, that's it. Anybody <laughs> will actually feel it. Um, that's very cool. All right. Well, for people who don't know you, now we know that you're from California, but can you give me a little bit of a... Give us a little bit of an introduction about you and also how you got to become an author. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I was born and raised in the U.S. in California. I was at university studying biology, the full name being ecology and systematic biology. And to be honest, I wasn't doing that well. <laughs> and I think I enjoyed perhaps the poetry of nature more so than the time in the lab. 
learning <laughs> plant names and that sort of thing. Um, so at the same time that I was studying ecology badly, I took a, a dance class at the recommendation of a friend and a yoga class by a recommendation of the same friend. And I just fell in love with those things, much more so than I felt I was um, enjoying biology. So I just decided to take some time off. I dropped out of university for a year and a half and I traveled around the world a bit. And um, I studied a lot of dance and yoga during that time. Eventually I went back to university. I got my degree in dance from the California State University at Long Beach. And it wasn't just, I mean, obviously we danced a lot, <laughs> but there was also some solid education to that too. So I did courses in anatomy and physiology, uh, some Pilates work, you know, dance history, um, Laban movement analysis, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, there was there was really good theoretical knowledge there too, in addition to to simply just dancing. And then um, after that, I did some dance work, and I, I taught yoga. I've had lots of different jobs, including working at the zoo at one point, working at McDonald's. <laughs> so I've had all kinds of jobs, you know, whatever whatever needs to be done. But um, yeah, eventually I became a full-time yoga teacher. Um, and just about three years ago, I decided to embark on a master's degree. And so I went back to science. Um, so I, I uh, enrolled in, and have now completed a master's in um, sport, health, and exercise science from Brunel University in London. And that was an amazing journey. And I, I loved every moment of it. I, I love learning. I love being in that process of learning. You know, <laughs> at night, my partner says, my lovely partner, she'll do crosswords, French crosswords, because she's French, you know, on, <laughs> in bed. And, and what I do to relax is read about anatomy and physiology. It honestly puts me in this very relaxed space. Um, so that's, that's truly what I do for, for my free time. I enjoy it. I've been teaching anatomy on yoga teacher trainings for the last five years. Um, so I go into a, for example, 200 hour teacher training and I'll deliver the 20 to 30 hours of anatomy component for that. Uh, I've been doing that, as I said, for five years. So yeah, I, I make my living through teaching yoga, through teaching teachers, and I, I honestly love every moment of it. I like teaching, uh, you know, members of the public, if you will, you know, just like your normal yoga practitioners, as much as I love teaching yoga teachers about the, all the amazing facets of the body. And through anatomy and physiology learning, I feel like I have learned so much about my own body, my own practice, and it's empowered me as a teacher. And that's, what I wish to share with other teachers is to feel more empowered, to feel more confident, to feel more fearless in their delivering of yoga, which is honestly an, an amazing movement modality. Um, so uh, if I had to boil down my, my mission, <laughs> it's to empower yoga teachers, basically. That's awesome. And uh, I mean, I had the pleasure of doing class with you. So I, I surely know that you're a good teacher and, um, you also know what you're talking about when it comes to the body, which I, we both agree perhaps that because there are so many cues that are taught when you do teacher training, 
that are taught almost in a way that is parroting one another. A lot of people don't actually know what they're saying when they're giving cues. And um, I feel that's such a disadvantage. And I mean, I'm, I'm putting myself in that category as well, where I learned certain things. And then later, when I actually started studying deeply um, or deeper uh, anatomy and uh, in the body, I was like, this doesn't make sense. When I say this, it doesn't make sense. Um, and um, and I learned so much that, you know, sadly, I really thought I, had, I knew what I was talking about. It made sense at the time, but there is this um oh, yeah this this concept of repeating what you've been taught by your teacher but if your teacher is not educated in anatomy sometimes again it's the process of parroting one another and instead of you know helping our students we actually can really injure them <laughs> long term so that becomes a problem uh, but before we're going to talk about that a little bit more after but i'd like you to just uh, tell me a little bit more how the book idea came about um so you were teaching you were uh, teaching teachers teaching students and then how did the book idea come about yeah oh, you're right i didn't answer that question <laughs> so, i was just talking about myself i love talking about myself no i don't really. <laughs> <laughs> but um so when I started teaching anatomy, I reached out to a fellow anatomy teacher who also delivers programs on YTTs, yoga teacher trainings, um, and that's Andrew McGonigal. Um, so I reached, just reached out to him about four or five years ago. Um, I said, we both teach anatomy, should we meet up, you know, <laughs> talk mm. shop. And, and he, he's been incredible the whole time. He's such a great guy. I remember at that first lunch, which I invited he, him to, he insisted on paying. <laughs> he, he gave me his manual, his anatomy manual. He said, yeah, have a look at it. You know, feel free to use parts of it as you like. He's been so generous. Absolutely. Um, so he's been a great friend, a great colleague. And then he, he came up with the idea for this book and approached me and basically said, you know, I don't want to do this book alone. Uh, so would you be willing to do it with me? And I, I immediately said yes, and and it was very much a roller coaster. You know, there were times when I was sitting on my laptop typing, which took hours and hours, and thinking honestly, like this this is rubbish. What I'm writing is garbage. No one's going to want to read this. You know, <laughs> and I think it's a normal part of any project that you go through that there are ups and downs, and you and you doubt yourself. Um, so it's been a, a yeah a roller coaster of of emotions in writing this book, but. In the end, yeah, I, I am really happy with the product. And what we are trying to do is bring the evidence base, the large body of scientific evidence to the yoga teacher and, and to make it accessible to the yoga teacher. So yeah, so it came from Andrew initially and um, it, it's been a, a really a labor of love and I've, I've enjoyed all of it. That's great. And the book just came out now uh, in the US, right? It's available in the US. Yeah. And the copies are currently being shipped to the UK. So if it's not available yet, it will be soon, basically. Amazing. So your publisher is a US publisher then? It is. Human Kinetics, which is a great publisher. They do loads of sport and health science related topics. So it's, we're 
we're very blessed to be with that publisher also. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Well done. Um, well, I had a chance to look at the uh, soft copy of the book and uh, I must say, I, I truly love it. And by the way, it's everybody's called the physiology of yoga. So for, for those who don't know by um, Andrew McGonagall and uh, Matthew Huey, and you should really get yourself a copy because it is fantastic. So one thing I found really interesting is that um, you broke the, the body down really like the book down uh, by body parts but also then diving deeper into the the different aspects of that body parts for example your skeletal system or musculoskeletal system the nervous system respiratory system and then you just dive deeper into that and and what i love is that it's not just about the anatomy of the body but actually how it functions and um, how it can how everything connects together and one thing that um, obviously as a holistic health coach i really appreciate that because it kind of ties together the fact that the body works as a unit even though we have different body parts and they all have a role they have a job and uh, we kind of uh, get into disease or ailments or um, or you know um, pain when um, um, when we don't allow our body to function the best that it can and uh, pain is a big one because in classes for example uh, we have a lot of people that come whether they have wrist pain or hips uh, or uh, they're just very stiff and they have pain everywhere. Um, and, um, and of course, we can actually dissect those different parts of pain also because a lot of people are like, oh, you're fascist, and there's all sorts of stuff. And I do love one thing about the book, the myth busting. So we're going to have to have some myth busting on the show today. But um, yeah, let's talk about pain a little because I think if uh, anybody... Uh, whether they are a teacher or not, whether they're just people that go to class, we all face pain, uh, whether it's a pre-workout and chronic pain or uh, actually after our, uh, our classes. So where does pain come from and what does pain actually mean? Yeah, great question. And pain science is something that I focused on in my master's also. Um, so first of all, pain is an output of the brain rather than an input from the body. So uh, all throughout our body, we have nerve receptors known as nociceptors. So noci comes from the Latin word nocere, nocere, however you pronounce it, which means to harm. <laughs> so we have nociceptive input coming from uh, every part of our body and even inside the body. Um, and they basically measure a certain threshold of stimulus. So if you know you brush something lightly on your finger you will sense that but it's not enough to trigger the nociceptive uh, neurons to to fire right or or to carry it up through the central nervous system however if you cut your finger and we have all kinds of sensors which some which even measure uh, uh these compounds that that broken cells release right so we can measure these these compounds in the blood and all that sort of stuff and then it will send a message through uh, to the central nervous system. And then at the spine, there's kind of like a gate. And if the, the message from the nociceptive uh, neurons is strong enough, then that message will go up through the spinal cord, up to the brain. And the brain will then interpret that information. So nociceptive information from the body is only one part of pain, right? And sometimes not even a part at all. So our brain will consider contextual factors, 
So if you're running from a bear, for example, <laughs> it's going to hear, okay, I, I understand that my foot is broken. However, it's more important that I run from this bear. So I'm going to override those nociceptive signals, okay? Um, it, factors including social factors, like it might, it, you might be amongst friends or you might be presenting in front of people and you don't want to show that, I don't know, you're, that you've tripped and, and hurt yourself, right? So our brain will uh, consider all this information and it will then create a feeling of pain if it decides the feeling of pain is the right thing. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so the pain is, as you could say, in the brain and it, it will then uh, send messages back down. So the descending pathway of pain down through the nerves, central nervous system. And it will either, it'll do a couple of different things. It will, uh, slow down the nociceptive signal, say, okay, I, I can't listen to those right now, or it can amplify them. And so this is why people can sometimes perhaps be in a, a traumatic accident, like a car accident or something. And then they might not feel pain in the, in the heat of the moment. And, and also, you know, it, it, this is being affected by neurotransmitters and hormones like adrenaline, noradrenaline, that sort of thing. And it's not until perhaps that they get to the hospital that they start to feel pain. Right, so this is a really common occurrence. Um, so pain is is one part of nociception, and it is much more complex than the simple thing of tissue damage equals pain. And we can also have kind of problems in the system at times too. So we can sense pain sometimes even when there's no uh, nervous stimulus. There's no input coming from the outside. So I'll give you an example. There've been some studies. Uh, there's one where you, uh, they put um, uh, people in a sham stimulator. So think of a hairdresser's uh, hairdryer from the 1960s, right? Mm -hmm. And then you have a little knob with the numbers one to 10 and you tell the person, okay, we're doing some brain stimulation right now, but nothing's plugged in. <laughs> now, there's no electrical, there's nothing going on. You're just putting something on someone's head. And interestingly, quite often, people will experience pain to the point where they'll have to leave the experiment and say, I can't take any more. They might leave with headaches and that sort of thing. And yet there is no outside stimulus, right? And there is no tissue damage. So we can also have pain when there's, there's no tissue damage, um, or we can have nociceptive signals amplified. And this can happen in the case of something called complex regional pain syndrome, where the nociceptive signals of the brain get kind of um, hyper amplified. And so the, the simple thing of like a feather brushing on someone's forearm might feel like searing pain. So uh, pain is a real thing for sure, but it's not as simple as pain equals tissue damage. And that's the same with um, everything from, um, uh, from you know, cutting your finger which could happen in an accident, to chronic low back pain, which is a, a fascinating topic in and of itself. And chronic low back pain is more associated, it seems, with psychosocial factors, such as um, how you're feeling in yourself, how you are getting on in your love life, how um, um, uh, if you've been through any serious episodes of depression or anything like that, all of those things affect your back pain more so than specific pathoanatomical causes 
like a disc degeneration or a disc herniation or something like that. Wow. So that, that's a kind of a nutshell of pain and nociception and how they're not always the same. Yeah. Wow. That's fantastic. And I didn't really know that either. Um, but I, I can, can we talk a little bit more about back pain? Because I feel that the majority of people are displaying um, issues uh, and symptoms of back pain. And I don't know if you have seen an increase in the last two years, because you mentioned um, depression being one of the causes of back pain rather than physical um, injury. And uh, we have seen a lot of depression in the last two years because mostly isolation when we were in lockdown, um, a lot of, um, well, a lot has happened, you know, and so a lot of people got affected by it in one way or another. And I just wonder if you've seen an increase in, uh, in back pain because of uh, emotional instability. So you're right to say that a lot of us do get back pain and it, it can be difficult to, to come up with a number because what num I mean, what do you measure? Is it people with back pain for two weeks and you say, and, that, and then we measure everyone who's ever had back pain for two weeks or should it be longer than six weeks or something like that? Mm -hmm. But estimates, uh, you know, based on, on data that we have available show that about two thirds of us or more will have at least one episode of back pain in our life. Right? So back pain, you, you can say at some point is more common than never having back pain, you know? So it's, it's very likely at some point in your life that you will have back pain. And as, as we both said, yeah, psychosocial factors do affect back pain. And that's something that we've only learned about in the last 30 years. Um, there's, there is a difference, of course, and it's important to, to know when we're talking about evidence-based information, um, which comes from you know, scientific studies versus anecdote. You know? And anecdote is what I've seen personally, right? So I, I can tell you that either, yes, I have seen more back pain recently, or I have not seen more back pain, but really that would be just down to my experience. And um, my experience will be different to someone who is a personal trainer, someone who's a banker, someone who's a back pain specialist, right? Um, I, I have heard, uh, but I have not looked into this research myself. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I am going to be cautious in my language, but I have heard there has been a slight increase in in anxiety, in you know, since COVID and that sort of thing, uh, and with that, it, it, it there could be a, a correlation, an association also with higher back pain. But I, myself personally, I've not seen an increase, and also I I'm not I would be careful to to state talk for the whole world about whether there's been an increase overall. Mm. No, of course. Sense. Yeah. yeah, no, of course. I mean, our, our experience and knowledge is also limited. I, I think anecdotal um, evidence is, uh, is valuable, and it's the, but it's the start to getting deeper into then research, right? Even when you have um, scientists wanting to do um, any sort of experiment and study, they would have they will start with anecdote, but. Uh, it's not very easy to put those into practice as uh, normal uh, people that don't work in uh, in that field. So 
I yeah, I, I just find it fascinating. I mean, I, I know a lot of people that have back pain and I never really brought it down to the social issues. Um, but why why is the back where social issues seem to be mostly concentrated? That's something that is fascinating. Why we hold it in the back, lower back? Well, I, I wouldn't say that that's not necessarily the only place where social issues will, or psychosocial factors will affect pain. So if you're more predisposed to neck pain, for example, then it's more likely that you'll have an episode of neck pain mm. at a time when you are stressed and you're not sleeping enough and you're not eating that well, mm. you know, um, or if, you know, wherever it is that in, in your body, it's, it's not specific to the back, but an overall systemic um, increased sensitivity to pain. And in fact, another time, interestingly, when this happens is during pregnancy. Mm. So um, research has shown, interestingly, that it's not relaxin, which is the hormone that's released in higher quantities during pregnancy and which creates more malleable uh, connective tissue. It's not relaxin that causes the pain because uh, people who are pregnant can have higher levels of it and not have pain and people can have lower levels of it and have pain. Right. Uh, but what does seem to be the, the associative factor is your previous episodes of pain and your predisposition to pain. Mm -hmm. So at certain times in your life of high stress or of certain physiological events, you are more likely to feel pain wherever that might be, you know, that could be your lower back, that could be your hip, it could be your elbow, your neck. And pain is, uh, uh, as I was saying before, a complex, um, multifactorial um, phenomenon, uh, which is affected by a lot of things. So um, does that answer the question hopefully <laughs> yeah it does yeah it's, yeah of course it does um so yeah I'm, i was asking that question from an from uh, the the side from from say the angle of uh, chinese medicine you know we have different body parts they hold different feelings and so the manifestation of um, an ailment or pain uh, could be a reflection of something deeper now we talked about psychosomatic um, factors that can affect the back and you know the the lower back um, in a way it's like our center the back of our center right we our trunk and um, if we are not feeling centered we're not feeling strong we're not feeling grounded sometimes um, our center is not going to be supporting the weight of the rest of the body in a way um, the upper body and um and it can the pain can go there and and that could be not just a physical aspect but also metaphysical where we are psych psychologically maybe not feeling stable so we don't have that center the stability so you know i was connected to that kind of aspect um but then again even in uh, in chinese medicine even in uh, ayurveda in any other science you have uh, different body parts that can feel uh, pain and then it's maybe related to different um, issues. So just interesting how the body really works and how we manifest whatever we're feeling into these um, uh, somatic uh, responses. Um, so one of the things actually that 
I would love to connect to to talking about pain is um, the fascia. So you have a, you actually have a very good chapter about fascia in the book, and and now this is like the the buzzword of the yoga world. But not only um, I'm studying uh, holistic nutrition at the moment at Ehi, and my I have an amazing uh, lecturer, and um, we talk about the fascia a lot. And we obviously talk about the fascia in relations to um, inflammation and um, to nutrients deficiency and uh, so the tightness that can come from those kind of aspects. But in the yoga world, of course, fascia is used a lot when we talk about stretches and, um, and especially in uh, things like yin yoga um, is being connected to, to the fascia. And I, I, I know what is in the chapter because I read it, but I, I would love you to talk about it. Um, and especially for people that are teachers or go to class to actually get an understanding of A, what the fascia is and B, what it does um, and what it doesn't and what it isn't. Because I think people are getting a little bit confused, um, but, uh, but it is an important part of our body, even though we don't, in a way, we, you know, you would never go to a doctor and the doctor would be like, oh, yeah, there's inflammation in your fascia. <laughs> but it is, however, holding, in a way, wrapping around organs and muscles. So it is something that is there and we should really pay attention to. But it's a little bit abstract in a way at the same time. So, yeah, yeah so if you can get into that, that would be great. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it'd be good for us to define it, <laughs> yeah. which can be a tricky endeavor in itself because even the fascia research council sometimes change their, their definition of fascia. And it's not, there's not necessarily one um, ex widely accepted definition. But usually when we're talking about fascia, we're, we're talking about connective tissue, which as you said, goes all throughout the body. There's a very high collagen contact, content, which is a type of protein. And you can find it from you know, the top of your head all the way down to your toe. <laughs> and so it's going to be um, basically holding, investing, and um, penetrating all organs, all, uh, all tissues. So if we look specifically at muscle, so you will have the muscle itself, okay? And if we took a cross section of the muscle, so we cut the muscle in half and we looked at it, on the outer layer, there would be a, a, a layer of fascia, right? And then the muscle itself is organized into bundles, so muscle bundles, and each of those uh, muscle bundles, also called fascicles, will be covered by fascia. They're called fascicles because they're covered by fascia. And then you can even go down smaller than that, down to the individual muscle cell or the muscle fiber. And again, that's covered by another layer of fascia. And as you say, it, it, it can sound a bit mysterious, but it is very much dissectable. You can see it, though it might be translucent. It can be, it can take on lots of different colors. Um, it might be a bit um, web-like. It's often described as having a web-like nature. Certain types of fascia are meant to be really strong and tight and hold things together. Other um, interfaces of fascia are meant to glide along each other. Um, and even then the fascia that covers all of the, the belly of the muscle and the fascicles then becomes the tendon of the muscle. So basically you have this fascia, this covering of the sausage, as Tom Myers <laughs> describes it sometimes, 
And that covering then turns into the end of the sausage, which then goes on to the next sausage or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, but that covering then becomes the tendon. And that tendon is then continuous with the periosteum, which is the outer layer of fascia around all bones, right? So you could very much uh, look anywhere in the body and find fascia, and it is dissectable. In fact, the Fascia Research Council, um, uh, one of the words that they use to to describe it is, is as dissectable, right? So it's not just this, mysterious thing that you can't see. No, you can very much dissect it. Um, And it's interesting because previously, even during, you know, Andrew, he he trained as a medical doctor, but some decades ago. So even during his time when he was training as a medical doctor, the fascia was basically stripped away from the cadavers and basically just thrown into buckets. (laughs) And some decades ago, we we just thought of fascia as this inert, inactive placeholder, like it just held stuff together. And it certainly does hold stuff together, but then we are learning more about it through research that actually it, hurt, it holds more nerve receptors than the muscle fibers themselves, right? So uh, fascia is sometimes described as the sensing organ for the body. Uh, so it can sense when it's being pulled tightly it can sense perhaps when it's being compressed, if it has the, the right uh, nerve receptors called baroreceptors. Um, and basically our, oh, it can also contract to a very small amount, the, the research of Robert Schleip has found. So not anything like muscles, but it can contract to a very small amount, maybe 1% of, of what a muscle can contract to. So we're learning more about it every day, right? And it's interesting because it's something that we thought previously as as not important. And now we're realizing, actually, it is important. However, where I think, and this is where research is falling short, we're we're not sure how to apply this knowledge clinically. When I say clinically, I mean both in terms of medicine, but even in terms of rehabilitation, yoga, movement. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So... I think it's really interesting to learn about, but I, we're not really sure um, what's going on with the fascia when we're doing yoga, right? We know that um, uh, we become more flexible, but that's probably more uh, a function of the central nervous system than it is um, the fascia. And I think this is where the research will, will go next is to, to look at, can information about fascia help us clinically? Can it help us to, I don't know, diagnose disease or to help people move better or that sort of thing? So for the everyday yoga teacher, I think it's great to learn about. It's really interesting to learn about or fascinating as as one might say. (laughs) But does it matter on a daily basis? You know, no, I don't think so. And in fact, I think if we are cueing people about fascia, it can sometimes actually take them out of just being present on how their body feels and on the breath. So that's, that's, but that's my take on, on, on methodology, on, on the teaching of yoga. And um, I, what's interesting also is that fascia seems to create a lot of debate. And I, I found people get more um, kind of 
hot under the collar when you talk about fascia. Like I had a, an Instagram post saying you cannot release your fascia <laughs> because the idea doesn't even make sense that you can release your fascia, right? But that's a, that's, that's, that's a different topic. And that I think that got stirred some debate. Um, Andrew, and also, Andrew and I also wrote a blog article about fascia, which created some, some debate also. And yet if I talked about tendons, which are also part of the fascial system, there wouldn't be such debate. So it seems yeah. to be like a very buzzword, um, but I'm not sure honestly that it deserves as much um, a sort of relegation and importance as, as we're giving it maybe. But, I'm, but I, I like talking about it. I like learning about it. I like discussing it with others and, and learning from other people's opinions. Um, I've, one of the reasons that yin yoga is described as affecting the fascia more than say uh, more young forms of yoga or more active dynamic forms is just that you're holding the pose for longer. Um, so, and this is where we're, we're speculating, you know, we do know that fascia, like uh, most tissues of the body is viscoelastic, meaning that it can deform, it can change shape, but then it can also go back to its original shape. So we know that it's viscoelastic and that it does, it has this property known as creep. It, it, it moves, it deforms with time, right? Um, so the idea is that yin yoga might induce more creep in the body. <laughs> it sounds very weird, doesn't it? But basically <laughs> yin might deform the fascia more than more active forms of yoga. And there's some sound reasoning to that, but at the moment that's speculation. So um, in my, my opinion is, if you like yin yoga, do yin yoga. <laughs> mm. If you like active yoga, do active yoga. You know, if you like lifting weights, go lift weights. And actually probably all three of those are a really good combination, right? That's, mm. that's what I like to do personally, lift weights, do active yoga. And they do some nice restorative yin yoga. And if I can give one more analogy, I was thinking about this the other day. Um, I was preparing, I, don't, I, I had a big day. I had a, like some, I don't know, I had something lined up and I thought, you know what, I'm gonna wear my best pair of underwear today. <laughs> <laughs> and I was thinking maybe fascia or, or, or better, better said, maybe yoga is like putting on your best pair of underwear. Right now, if I put on my best pair of underwear, no one's going to know, but I'm just going to feel a little bit better. I'm going to have like maybe a, a slightly higher release of serotonin, that happy chemical, maybe endorphins, maybe that sort of thing. And I'm just going to feel a little bit more confident, maybe. Right. But nobody is going to be arguing about the physiological properties of how um, better underwear affects your fascia or affects your other physiological uh, or anatomical parts of the body, right? Mm -hmm. We just know, okay, it's going to make me feel a little bit better. And maybe yoga is, is a bit like that, or you could say exercise in general. Like it, it has this obviously physical effect and it has these mental psychological effects in the same way that like putting on a good pair of underwear does if that makes sense. It does. I mean, <laughs> I really don't think about underwear much, but I can see why it would. Um, it's like people that put really sexy underwear and they like feel really confident. Yeah, I totally get it. Um, yeah. yeah. And it is true it. that if you're looking for things, like if I say, all right, start looking for red cars, you're going to start looking for red cars. Mm. And people start to do that when they're 
when they're thinking about buying a red car and mm. they start saying, wow, there are red cars everywhere. Or when you get pregnant, well, there are pregnant people all, all over the place, you know, yeah. or prams and you start noticing the, the prams, the baby push chairs that, that people are carrying, whatever, you know, you notice what you want to notice. And this is sometimes described as, as the law of attraction, right? And there, there is something very much to be said that about like, if I feel like I'm going to be good at business <laughs> and then I go out and I live my life thinking I'm going to be a good at business. Yeah. I'm more likely to be good at business. Mm. And same way that research has shown that when you give people sales targets, they're much more likely to, to sell more. Right. So this is basically, we have the reality that we expect to have within reason. How does that, how does that sit with you? It sits right. So I'm going to think about the fascia <laughs> in a way and feel good about it. Um, I mean, you know, I, I'm, yeah, I, I never really think about the fascia too much. I'm like, it's there. I know it's there. I study it and it's great and I, yeah. I love it. And it's part of a, a beautiful system. Um, but I never really dissected it that much that I'm like oh I'm gonna I wonder what I'm doing to my fascia today while I'm stretching mm. <laughs> so uh, you know it's interesting that people get heated about it but you said something interesting yeah. about that you said that it contains a lot of um, neuron receptors so how does fascia relate to pain well that's a good question and and that's I think on the cutting edge of, of research um, so in our book we, we have a section on on um, back pain and also on fascia, it's not a whole chapter devoted to fascia. So mm -hmm. it's the musculoskeletal system with a good section on fascia. And you know, there, there's been some research, I think uh, one study where they found that people with low back pain had slightly stiffer fascia in their low back, right? So, <laughs> but that's just one study, you know? And that's just showing a correlation, right? Maybe their fascia is stiffer, um, because of the back pain rather than the fascia causing the back pain, right? Or maybe like um, um, other correlations that we see like divorce rates and margarine consumption, there's an interesting correlation between those two. I don't know if you've ever heard that correlation, but uh, we, we sometimes get these associations which aren't necessarily causal associations. It's not one causing the other. So uh, the topic of, of how does fascia relate to pain is, is, is not really well understood to, to, to my knowledge from my reading about the scientific literature. I don't think we can, we can jump to that conclusion, but we do know that pain, as I was saying before, is multifactorial, is affected by lots of things, um, including biopsychosocial factors. And perhaps you've heard of the biopsychosocial model, which is in contrast to the biomedical model, which kind of um, says the biomedical model basically says that if you have pain, it must be attributed to some anatomical cause, right? Like disc degeneration, disc herniation. But the, the biopsychosocial model looks at the whole person basically and, and considers all those different factors that affect a, a person's well being and, and their pain levels and that sort of thing. And it's a, uh, it's a, uh, the, the model that is being used more and more in clinical settings, so by physiotherapists, by doctors, and it's, it's been around for like three, at least three decades. So, oh no, I'm older than that, aren't I? So it's been around since at least the 70s. 
the biopsychosocial model. That's when it was introduced first. And um, I think it's, it's a, a beautiful way of explaining how uh, pain is not affected by just one thing. And in fact, 90% of people with low back pain have the type known as nonspecific low back pain. So you can put them into an MRI, X-ray, look for um, changes to their spine, changes to their back, and you won't find anything, right? So 90% of all back pain is nonspecific. And what is interesting then also is how do we get out of pain? So exercise is one of the things that can help pain. Um, uh, improving your social life, your uh, psychological factors can also help improve pain. Um, and then there are just sometimes sadly these very persistent cases of pain where nothing seems to help. And so then maybe it's about living well with pain as much as possible. And I think knowing that pain does not necessarily equate with tissue damage can be really liberating because in my own yoga practice, I might do, be doing a backbend and think and or a feel some discomfort, some pain in my lower back, but I know, okay, it's not necessarily tissue damage. And I feel comfortable working with those sensations in my body. Right? Yeah. So I don't think we necessarily need to run away from pain at all times. And there's actually some research that, that shows that um, exercising with pain, even during pain, does not increase your base level of pain. And in fact, will improve it, will, it will basically decrease your pain to the same level that general exercise will. So keep moving, <laughs> basically, and uh, observe the sensations in your body and know that pain is part of it. We wouldn't expect to always be happy, would we? Mm. You know, that emotions are, are, have lots of different facets. And so I think it's the same with our body. We will be in pain sometimes, and sometimes we won't. <laughs> Yeah, I think pain sometimes triggers fear. And, yes. uh, and that's probably the more uh, powerful uh, stop, showstopper. You know, people don't want to, they're afraid of feeling more pain or not getting better. Um, I mean, I certainly had students in my classes that were terrified of going, you know, doing a chaturanga because of their wrist, uh, even with yeah. adjustments, you know, even like putting the knees down. And, and I think... Um, I, I definitely saw from them that the fear was higher than the pain. Um, yeah. So it was, it was, it's an interesting factor. Um, but, and, and you speak kind of about it, about it. Uh, well, you speak about um, our uh, psychology in a way, but our nervous system, um, because obviously our emotions are part of a bigger, a bigger picture when you talk about the brain and the nervous system. Um, but it's, um, it's, it's an interesting thing to how emotions can also affect the way that our body naturally works, you know, things in, in, the, in the body without any, any emotions that might stop things from working. It works, everything works kind of seamlessly, seemingly because our body is so perfectly designed. But then we are the ones that bring in sometimes those factors that might compromise the way that we are naturally meant to function. So um what yeah in your research or in your in your uh, even curiosity even if it's not in the book but um the, how does fear 
affect people on an overall, especially on the mat, because we're talking about yoga. It's nice to just keep it in uh, in that in that kind of context. Um, how do you feel that fear affects people on the mat? Uh, that's a great question. And you were talking about how you think um, you, you can see this this cycle of of people in fear in your yoga classes. And psychologists have a, a, a model called the fear avoidance model. It's basically a, a cyclical model, a cycle showing how we get injured. So we have some instance, right? Something happens once, right? We have our first episode of back pain or whatever. We trip or whatever. We fall out of handstand for the first time. Okay, something happens. And yes, there is an injury. Uh, but then what happens is instead of overcoming that injury, we then become fearful. And that fear then leads to um, us reducing our physical activity, reducing our yoga, reducing our movement. Um, also, and that can then contribute to um, changing or stopping meaningful events in your life. And an important factor, interestingly, um, in someone going from acute low back pain to chronic low back pain, which is described as basically less than six weeks and then versus more than three months. So why does low back pain turn from less than from um, six weeks long to more than three months long? Why does it become chronic or, or persistent? And a, an important factor is people stopping meaningful activities. Mm. For example, uh, maybe you are a rower, you stop rowing or you stop mountain climbing or you stop picking up your children or your grandchildren maybe even stop driving or you stop flying and, and you're an avid traveler or whatever. So this is a really important factor that can fairly accurately predict um, short-term pain becoming long-term pain. Um, so th that is the, the fear avoidance model, right? And then it can just lead to this persistent pain, this, this cycle of, of being fearful and then not getting back to um, physical activity and meaningful activities and then your pain continues. And we need some kind of intervention to get out of that cycle. That intervention can be uh, some a psychological intervention like cognitive behavioral therapy and saying, okay, so you have this fear of whatever, is that rational? You know, that's kind of quite often how CBT works. Um, or it could be an intervention like yoga, right? In yoga, we, we do things that are scary. We do things that are awkward, uncomfortable all the time. <laughs> you know, re, uh, revolved side angle pose with a bind. That is not comfortable. Nobody mm -hmm. wants to do that with their free time. No one would <laughs> watch television in that pose. Um, <laughs> and headstand, handstand, I sometimes describe them as fearasana. <laughs> Part yeah. of the, the, the challenge of handstand is having that fear and and working with it you know mm. like feel the fear and do it anyway i think there's a book in the 80s called that or something yeah feel the fear and do it anyway so uh this can be an intervention so in our yoga practice we have lots of little opportunities to to learn about ourselves to explore our body to experience fear and i see that a lot in in something like um bakasana or mm. crane pose and I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I can see the person is keeping their feet on the floor and I'm saying, you just need to go a few millimeters further forward and then you'll be balancing on your hands because <laughs> they always need to shift forward. They need to get their center of mass over their point of support, which is going to be their hands. They need to shift forward. 
but they stop themselves. They say, oh no, I, I'm not scared to, or whatever, you know? Yeah. Or they start to lift their feet and they immediately push into their hands and come back down to the floor so they're not balancing. So our yoga practice gives us lots of opportunities to explore fear and to uh, perhaps overcome it. And uh, I think it can have the effect of, of uh, getting us perhaps out of that, that uh, fear avoidance cycle. Do you think that, um, that you, what you were saying that I just saw this image, like, you know, people that perhaps want to really get into yoga or are into yoga, but they're not experimenting so much with uh, more challenging poses. Do you think that fear could also come from um, feeling inept by, you know, things like social media? Because now we have obviously a platform where you have some people that are incredibly skilled and probably did gymnastics as children or um, are incredibly strong uh, with dancers for many years. And they do things that they, they seem to do it so easily. And for the rest of us, it's like, oh my gosh, if I did that, like I'd definitely crash and burn. Um, mm. So that could create, do you think that can create also a little bit of fear of, uh, you know, hurting yourself, but also not being good enough? Well, well, it certainly could, maybe, uh, you know, with, with someone who's, I don't know, already anxious, already fearful. And I do see this in my classes where uh, someone is a little bit more on the fearful side. And I, I propose the option of an inversion, which is always how I do it. I never say, you know, you have to do it, obviously. Mm -hmm. it's, it's their class. You know, I'm just the guide. So I propose the option. And there, there are people who instantly shut down and say, no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, inversions are not for me. I'll hurt myself. I'll break my neck, whatever. <laughs> um, um, as for like social media and Instagram, I, I don't know. I, I, I personally love and I get very inspired by seeing images of people doing incredible things mm. from... Uh, I don't know, people doing one-armed pull-ups to people doing amazing poses to, you know, uh, like for, I've seen this recently, like doing a handstand on a yoga wheel. <laughs> oh, <wow>. So <laughs> you could, you could roll in any direction. And there's even this, this um, great, I guess you could say movement artist, Stephanie Millinger. So she does a handstand on a wheel which is then on a bar. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just, it's like mind boggling, but I love seeing that. I, mm -hmm. I, I very much get inspired by that. And uh, of, if, does that instill fear in someone else? Perhaps so. I would say if so, then, then don't follow that person on Instagram. And we do all have the tendency, I would agree with you, of perhaps consuming things on social media that are not great for us, <laughs> that are not healthy or healthful for us. <laughs> and I do this too. You know, I, I see teachers who are younger than I am with less experience, but doing better than I am by, by my own definition of better, by my own definition of success, you know, mm. and that can, that can perhaps create feelings of jealousy in me or something. And then, uh, you know, I'll, I'll leave social media not feeling great about myself. And I'm thinking, well, hang on a second. Like I, I am the one who went on social media and I follow those people. 
Mm. I'm allowing myself to get into this loop. So you can, one of the best things you can do is just unfollow the people who don't make you feel more uplifted. And then also, I I think we can turn um, feelings of being inadequate by seeing someone do something better than us. We can turn that into inspiration, right? Mm. In the same way that in the yoga classroom, and I'll say this, like, if you see someone doing something amazing around you, like a, a handstand, which is really beautiful and coming into scorpion handstand, you know, rather than getting jealous of that person, let's, let's applaud them and say, well, it's beautiful what the human body can do and take inspiration from that, right? Mm. And, and let's not assume that that person is showing off. <laughs> like, I have a very flexible body, especially my hips. Um, I can do inversions fairly well. Sometimes I feel like I hold myself back in a group class because I don't want to be seen as showing off, right? Mm-hmm. So, and, and that's a shame. And so I really, I should just let myself be myself and let people think whatever they want to think, right? Mm-hmm. And also if we're observing that person doing this incredible hand balance or whatever, we shouldn't assume that they are doing it from ego, but their body can do it and it feels good to do it and have fun doing it. Yeah. Yeah, do you, definitely. Do you, do you think images from social media can create fear in people, though? I think sometimes they can, but it depends on the person's state of mind. Um, mm-hmm. And it's not, you know, it, it can be any context. It doesn't have to be yoga. Obviously, we're talking about the mat, and that's why I picked that as a, an example. But um, and because I've seen it, you know, uh, as you said, people doing bakasana and, and trying like and try not to fall on their face, and like you're not gonna fall on your face. And they don't believe you, even if it's like literally they will not fall on their face. And um, But they also might fall on their face. I mean, <laughs> you know what? The, but the, I have seen people in class fall on their face. And yeah. You know, I say. You might. It, but it you know happen. what? I've seen them too. But the way people fall generally from it is that they slide with the knee down. So, yeah, I mean, they might hit the face, yes. but like the knee comes down first. <laughs> so you're fine. Um, but yes. there's that image of like car crash you know like that that can be quite terrifying i get it i get why and um you know i've been teaching people with like bolsters and pillows and be like okay if you fall you'll be cushioned and Um, that's a great that's a great way of doing it because you're honoring that their fear which is a really important aspect of helping someone overcome fear but you need you can't say oh your fear is 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 unfounded just jump into the deep end of the pool, get over your mm. fear of, of water, you know? No, <laughs> you need to honor the fact that they do have that fear and then uh, meet them at that level. You start with just looking at a pool, right? Mm. Uh, if we're looking at the example of someone being fearful of water, right? Mm-hmm. And then you put a toe in. All right, you're okay putting a toe in. How about mm-hmm. next time we put a foot in, right? <laughs> you don't push them into the deep end. So I think you're absolutely right in giving them the props, the cushions, and also giving them that encouragement to say, you know, we, we tend to think the worst thing that we're going to fall flat on our face. And it is true that I have seen a couple of people fall down, fall forward, but they always turn their head to the side. I've never seen someone just bash right into their nose completely mm. carelessly. You know, our body has amazing mechanisms, mechanisms for protecting itself. Uh, I think when people do fall forward, they usually fall onto their shoulder or something like that. And it is still possible that you could fall onto the side of your face or their shoulder, but you know, that's okay too. <laughs> and mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with falling. And, you know, though I can balance in 
a handstand generally now, I've fallen out of it so many times. I've fallen out of headstand so many times and falling is part of the process. And actually, if we can help people to fall well, that can be an important thing. Yeah, That's what yeah, I'll do they- in an inversion workshop is to practice. Okay, let's actually purposely fall out of a headstand. And then they realize, oh, that's not bad. Well, then I can just go do headstand because the worst thing is that I'll just roll forward. Yeah, exactly. Knowing how to fall is the, the, the first thing to learn. I agree. Yeah. Um, and that takes a lot of the fear away because you know that then it's not going to be so bad. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, but, but, you know, so that's why I think social media can create that. But I I also, you know, as you said, like sometimes we just see, see things that don't make us feel good about ourselves, but then at the end um, it it is also a mindset at that point in time. And then just trying to, to use it as inspiration rather than, uh, than a setback. It's uh, really a powerful thing to do. And uh, I guess the, the, the nurturing thing that you can find on a yoga mat or any, any practice, I want to say any, any sport is that you're opening your mind to possibilities. And the whole point of actually moving your bodies that you are getting out of any stagnation. And that could also mean emotional um, where, you know, we get into this negative loop of uh, negativity where uh, we, we just a limitation where we're like, Oh, I can't, I can't, I can't. And instead we're moving our body. It's like, oh, wow, today I was a little bit better at doing a lunge and uh, picking up two kilos weight instead of one kilo yes. weight. And and it's possible to progress from there. But sometimes our fear can stop us from even beginning. And that's probably the thing that is the most deterrent um, part of, uh, you know, our um, our psychology that then will have a lot of aff- effect on our physiology. So, um that that is where i i just think that those things can um we need to be careful with them but then again it's all about how you know we use our uh, perception and how we actually snap out of it not in a horrible way but like in uh in a practical way in a you know proactive way like okay i'm not gonna let this get me down um and i think we saw this in the last two years again like people that were so fearful of everything that was going on that just stopped living. And mm-hmm. uh, now, even now, they might find it hard. Like I, I had neighbors in London that I'm, I really like. And uh, I used to, you know, I, am, I actually never expressed my views with them and we're not on social media. So they didn't know whether or not I was afraid of it or I was, uh, well, you know, emotional, like anxiously waiting for the solution to come. Uh, I was just, I never, I never picked that conversation with them. But I checked in on them and all I got back is like, every, everything is so terrible. People are starting to go out now, but I don't think we're ready. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's so sad because what have we done for two years? Like being afraid of living, you know, breathing air. And that is really what, um, that's probably the scariest thing for me is seeing people being so afraid of life than they're not living, whether that is um, doing yoga or going on a hike or traveling or anything, or even now hugging people. <laughs> so yeah. it's uh, that that's really sad. But uh, so I think fear is very powerful, which is why I brought it up. And, uh, and I think it relates a lot to pain and it relates to a lot of our, everything that you wrote in the book, you can bring fear into it and see how it will disrupt the way that our body's supposed to work. It's an amazing um, and it has an amazing effect on us as humans. 
Um, so, you know, it's obviously protective as well. I mean, we don't want to be reckless. Jeez, like we have to know, okay, I'm going to be careful. Uh, if you're not fearful of any, anything at all, if you don't actually have a bit of fear that, you know, gives you a moment to be rational, then you can kill yourself, yeah. sure. But um, yeah, but I think uh, we need to make sure that it doesn't become our driver, that we drive it. Otherwise, yeah. we just stop uh, doing everything. And um, that actually takes me to the next question and a very good chapter that you wrote about, which is the endocrine system. But um, so I work with a lot with women. So hormones come up all the time. And I like your input on how you think that our practice, yoga practice can positively affect, affect um, hormones. And there are, you know, aside from uh, female hormones, but um, things even like insulin, which people forget is a hormone, uh, but a lot of people, um, like older men um, and women, tend to now start having insulin resistance. I mean, starting to become younger and younger, actually children have insulin resistance now, but um, that is one hormone that I think um, we can probably talk about that a lot of people can relate to. Um, aside from other hormones, but in general, how does um, yoga affect our hormones, but also specifically when it comes to insulin, I like to bring that in. Yeah. I think just generally speaking, uh, yoga will basically help to balance out our hormones. <laughs> mm. uh, and it, the reality is it's not just yoga, to be honest, though I love yoga myself. Um, and obviously you do too, but really exercise in general, honestly, and movement and keeping physically active. So if it is the case that you prefer running half marathons to doing a yoga practice, or you love, um, I don't know, calisthenics, uh, Pilates, whatever, rowing, then great. As long as you're moving and getting the, the, the exercise in, that's when you're going to get all the benefits of it. And it wasn't in writing the endocrine chapter because I, I was a little bit scared of it, to be honest, because <laughs> mm. it was the one that I, that I knew the least about, probably. I was the most comfortable writing about the musculoskeletal because that's what I teach in a teacher training, for example. <laughs> With the endocrine, I thought, I don't even know where to begin. I thought it would be boring. It was, it was fascinating to learn about. And it's fascinating to realize also that we need this balance of so many hormones. I was trying to look up estimates of how many hormones we have in our body, and it's it's hundreds and hundreds, and it's it's hard to know the it's hard to know the exact number. Um, and we're also discovering new hormones at, at times, right? Um, and they are playing a vital role in everything that we do. It's just incredible. Even cortisol, which I devote a good uh, section on which is commonly called the stress hormone. And it certainly is released at higher levels during stressful events, but actually it is an essential hormone. And it's mm -hmm. sometimes described as the, the master hormone. Uh, right when you wake up, you get a, a shot of cortisol um, resulting in the cortisol awakening response. So it's what helps get you out of bed in the morning. Mm -hmm. um, and if you don't have enough of that, that's, that can lead to feeling lazy and not wanting to get out of bed, right? Which is uh, actually, you know, one of the symptoms of, of depression is a, a, a lack of, of desire to do things. And adrenal um, exhaustion too. Yeah. I yeah. had that. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Yeah, bless you. Yeah, and the, it, it's this amazing balance of hormones. Then serotonin being released, which helps us feel good. Endorphins, which is really interestingly a portmanteau, meaning a combining of two words of endogenous morphine. Ah. Endorphins, <laughs> endogenous morphine. You know, morphine is what we think of as as a, a painkiller, like to a really strong drug. If like uh, someone at the end of life might have morphine to help them just feel good, but our our body is producing the chemi- a chemically similar or pretty much the same structure as morphine, which is the same as what you find in street heroin. Makes sense. And, why, why we have so many receptors to it, though, to the drug then. Well, exactly. Exactly. The reason these drugs work, including cannabis, um, including nicotine, is because we have these receptors in our body and thus our body produces these things on their own. Mm-hmm. So we also have endocannabinoids. <laughs> so mm-hmm. our body is producing its own cannabis. And we don't know uh, very much about that. But that also seems to be um, uh, affecting motor movement, affecting mood, affecting appetite, all the sort of things that you associate with being high in can- cannabis potential, right? <laughs> so yeah, our, our body is this um, both this drug dealer and drug <laughs> buyer. Yeah. And generally, it's working in a really beautiful balance, but it can get out of whack. And it, and it can get out of whack because of uh, perhaps the what we're eating because of stress in our lives, chronic stress, it can get out of whack because we're not moving enough, um, exercising. So the way, uh, what, what we do know from research is that exercise in general helps balance out these hormones. It helps us get a, a, a better regulated amount of, as you said, insulin, which is the uh, necessary hormone running through the blood, which allows the cells to open up to glucose, which is what they need to, to burn, right? Um, so insulin resistance um, means that the glucose stays in your blood. And so the, the sign of diabetes is an increased uh, blood glucose. The, so, the blo- so the cells are not absorbing the glucose as they should, even when they, they need that energy. And so one of the, one of the symptoms of, of diabetes might be lethargy or an inability to um, you know, get the energy that you need, right? There are all kinds of, of symptoms to, to diabetes. Um, so yeah, exercise um, and, and yoga, including yoga, can help just balance all of this out, help balance out this, this medicine cabinet of all these amazing drugs that our body is producing, um, or, or I should say hormones rather than drugs, but um, drugs basically mimic those hormones. And but as, as yoga teachers, or just as parents or friends, encouraging other people to move. So for example, maybe meeting someone for a walk rather than just sitting down for a pint. <laughs> so that's, that's also has its benefits too. But um, you know, encouraging others to engage in physical activity is, is such a valuable thing that we can do. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, and, and to be honest, if we wanted to talk about hormones in details, this conversation would be hours long too, because they're very yes. complex. Um, but um, okay, let's, let's, we're almost out of time. So I'd love to talk to you about um, your favorite myth buster, busters All right, in, then, in yeah. the book. Okay, so three of them. What's your fa- top three? Go. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, twists help detoxify the liver. Or not just help, but detoxify the liver. 
Okay. Twist detoxified liver. And basically, no, they don't. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> is the short answer. Uh, is the uh, summarized Cliff's Notes version. Uh, so uh, detoxification very much happens, and it very mm -hmm. much happens in the liver. It's happening 24 hours a day, every yeah. second. Um, uh, even while you're sleeping, your liver is detoxifying blood. So, uh, uh, so it's receiving blood. It uh, binds to um, certain compounds that it finds, toxins, pollutants, and that sort of thing. And it extracts them from the blood, and then it filters the blood, sends the blood off on its way, a little bit better off, right? And it's doing this all the time, mm -hmm. okay? When you are twisting, you are not getting to the point that you're wringing out the liver. It's not like you're, you're wringing out a dish rag or a sponge or something like that, right? What's going to stop you well before that is going to be your spine, your fascia, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, other structures of the body, that sort of thing. Um, so you're not wringing out your liver, okay? So twists do not detoxify the liver. However, uh, exercise in general, including movement and yoga, are known to help improve our detoxification processes. So they're, yeah. they're known to make us a little bit more efficient at removing toxins. And so like if you prefer running as your favorite form of exercise, great, you're going to get that benefit of, of slightly improved detoxification. But at the same time, your body is doing what it needs to do. It is detoxifying itself. Um, and if it weren't, you would know. Yeah. You would know because you would have very serious symptoms like major fatigue, lethargy, your skin would change color. And at the, at the most extreme level, if your body is really not detoxifying, you would die because yeah. pollutants and toxins would just build up in the body. Yeah. So if you're having some of those symptoms, then yeah, definitely get it checked out and make sure you're getting all of those necessary ingredients for good health, including um, sleep, good sleep, good movement, exercise, good nutrition. Um, so, but the idea that like a twist alone is going to detoxify the liver, that's a myth. Brilliant, next. Although, <laughs> let me just finish by saying, <laughs> <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe things will prove differently in the future. And it, it's important to, to hold our strong beliefs lightly, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm just presenting what basically what we know about- The evidence. Uh, evidence physiology, physiological reasoning and that sort of thing. But you know what? We don't know everything for sure. There's a lot we don't know about the body. Mm -hmm. And so maybe it to just to add some nuance to this, maybe it is contributing in a way that we don't yet know. But as also, for now, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And the rationale, it's, it's not. <laughs> it's not there. But I do must say, I must say, I do feel like a good twist stimulates uh, my colon. So in the morning, it's great. If I exercise and I twist, I go to the toilet in a wonderful way. Yeah. And I do attribute to the twist. I don't know. I mean, I do. I, I'm regular anyway. Thank God for now because I, I suffered so badly with IBS that um, I'm grateful. But um, um, but I, I feel that twisting helps me kind of, you know, get ready for, um, uh, well, uh, re releasing um, as one should in the morning. <laughs> But, okay, yeah, and I, I, can, I can totally understand that. Do you think back bends would have the same effect, especially like Dhanurasana when you're on your tummy? Probably. Maybe, right? <laughs> yeah. Potentially, because, and, and I do understand there is, our, 
uh, our organs are certainly affected by mechanical stress, mechanical stimuli, especially bowel movements, which is, uh, um, it's not just a cellular process. It's actually a mechanical process, mm. obviously, of moving fecal matter, right? Yeah. <laughs> Whereas the liver, that's a cellular process. It's yeah. not a mechanical process. It's different. So it makes sense that, uh, you know, like even you can massage your tummy and that's done in like Thai yoga massage, mm. which I did a, a course on. Um, and yeah, of course that is going to help you go to the toilet more, you know, cause you're actually mechanically moving things along. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mechanically moving that fecal material. Yeah. That, that does make sense. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Okay. The second one, your favorite second. Okay. Um, okay. Shoulder stand stimulates the thyroid gland. Okay. Go. Right? Okay. <laughs> well, what does stimulate mean? I mean, that's that's the first problem. Stimulate. What does it mean? Like you're. What what do, you, you know? So if you can, you can say this stimulates a muscle in that an electrical stimulus is going to a muscle and creating a contraction of that muscle, right? So that stimulation in that way makes sense. But what are you referring to? When I say you, I don't mean you, Chantal. I mean like I know, I know what I mean. People. The people who say that. <laughs> <laughs> what are you referring to as stimulation? Are you talking, are you saying more blood flow? Or are you saying some electrical stimulus going to the thyroid? Or are you talking, are you saying that thyroid releases more uh, thyroid hormones? Right? Um, so first of all, what does stimulate mean? Um and you know the, the thyroid gland has lots of blood flowing to it. It's always it's already very richly supplied with blood, and um, the thyroid gland is part of a system where it has to first receive a message from the brain, to telling it to release uh, thyroid hormones, and which is a hormone itself. So, uh, uh, TRH, thyroid releasing hormone, that first has to go down to the thyroid. Um, um, and then there's thyroid stimulating hormone, TSH. And I, I forget which order it goes in. It says in the book. So if you read that, but you need one first, like you need the thyroid stimulating hormone, and then you need the thyroid releasing hormone, right? And those come from the brain first. So if you don't have those first, then your thyroid won't know to release the thyroid hormones themselves or then go through the bud, blood and, and help us with all the, the things that the thyroid does, um, including like increasing energy levels and that sort of thing because fatigue is, is one of the signs of hypothyroidism. Okay, so if you, so even if uh, shoulder stand were to increase potentially your levels of thyroid hormones, you would first need that increase of thyroid stimulating hormone and thyroid releasing hormone from the brain, right? So <laughs> it, it's not even necessarily that like that, that, that blood flow to the thyroid is going to do that. Also, uh, do we want more thyroid hormones going through our body? We want mm -hmm. a balance of everything. And there are two conditions associated with an imbalanced thyroid. That's hypothyroidism, not enough thyroid hormones. There's hyperthyroidism. Too many uh, thyroid hormones are being released um, by the thyroid gland. So wouldn't it depend on whether someone has hypo or hyperthyroidism to, mm -hmm. to determine whether they should be doing shoulder stand or not? And then secondly, um, or thirdly, or whatever point I'm on, 
it just it doesn't quite work like that. That you push on something and that stimulates it, right? I can push on a muscle and that's not doing anything. It's not stimulating the muscle to contract or anything. So uh, it 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 might make sense in a person's mind. It might be logical in the mind that shoulder stand can stimulate the thyroid, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it is physiological. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I never heard that actually. Funny, I've heard a lot of things in classes, but I've never heard that. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I never heard about the thyroid being stimulated by a shoulder stand. Um, if I heard it once, I would say what would come to mind for me is the compression uh, on our, our throat. So maybe yeah. just bringing more blood flow in it. Warming it up, I'm not sure. I I would probably think of that first. Um, if I heard it, like, and I didn't have this yeah. conversation with you and I didn't know better, I would be like, oh, that probably, because you're squeezing your neck and it could be that. Other than that, <laughs> I don't, yeah. I don't Although, know you... you know, are you squeezing your neck? It's it's really like, when you're doing a short hand, it's really like the, the vertebrae, the cervical vertebrae and all, all the the connective tissue around there, that's probably going to stop you mm, before yeah. you get to actually squashing uh, uh, this, this thyroid, thyroid structure exactly. yeah. deep inside the neck, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. totally. And I, I think, again, it comes down to how much do we know our bodies because, um, yeah. um, you know, we, we think about the outside and the inside almost being like having the same effect and or being yeah. affected the same by the exterior when it's not like this is why we have muscles to and, and bones to yeah. protect our organs otherwise can you yeah. imagine what a disaster it would be yeah. um yeah i think that claim about shoulder stand has as much reasoning as saying that a wide-legged forward fold so upavishta konasana your legs are open wide and you're folding forward uh saying about the the thyroid and shoulder stand has as much reasoning as saying a wide-legged forward fold will stimulate your sex hormones, right? <laughs> but it does yeah. it's because your sex hormones are produced in that same area, the testes yeah. and the ovaries, right? So by, <clears throat> by that same reasoning, then you could also say that stretching in a forward fold will increase your um, follicle-stimulating hormone or will increase your testosterone. And yet I don't think we'll jump to that because we think, oh, of course not, you know? But, but actually, that's pretty much the same reasoning, right? Oh my so, gosh, if that happened, I think people don't do these things in class. You're going to have a problem. <laughs> like, you know, too many people yeah. trying to get home together after class. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, all right. So I think it's like you said about a parrot cue at the beginning. You know, it's something that we've heard. It's something that kind of kind of vaguely makes sense in, in your brain because, oh yeah, that you're squashing that part of your body so, and there's a thyroid gland in there, so we must be doing something to it, right? But from what we know about physiology, no, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. <laughs> and the third one. Okay, let me, um, how about inversion? So like headstand, forearm stand, headstand, bring more blood to the brain. Okay, <laughs> have you heard that one? Yes. Okay. I never use it as a cue though, because, well, I don't know. I just yeah. never thought it was necessary. Yeah. Okay, so when you are upside down, your heart is definitely above your, your head, mm -hmm. okay? 
and that can affect blood pressure. And in fact, we do see, and this has been measured scientifically, we do see an increase of blood pressure to the head. Mm-hmm. So people's, you know, like their faces can get red. Uh, uh, their, their eyes can swell a little bit. So the uh, intraocular pressure, the pressure inside the eyes can increase. And that's one of the reasons that um, it's said that glaucoma or mm-hmm. increased, which is increased eye pressure, basically, is a contraindication for inversions, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or same with increased blood pressure, uncontrolled increased blood pressure for hypertension, right? So it, it does increase um, <coughs> blood flow, excuse me, or blood pressure to the head on the outside of the brain. However, the blood going to the brain is going through different arteries, and it's a very different system, and it is very tightly controlled. It is something known as cerebral autoregulation. So it's controlling the blood flow. So as soon as you go upside down, the arteries that supply the, the, the brain, the carotid arteries, are going to decrease shrink. in size. They're going to shrink or constrict, as the name is known technically, right? Yeah. So you're actually going to decrease the blood flow. Or more correctly, you're going to regulate it and you're going to keep it regular. Our brain is using lots of um, glucose. It's using lots of energy. Um, at least 20% of our energy used is by the brain just by thinking and just by doing the things that it has to do, like telling our body to move and all that sort of thing. Um, so we need a really tightly controlled level of glucose and oxygen and uh, all the the nutrients going to the brain. We need that really tightly controlled and it is really well controlled. Um, There there are some people where they they don't auto-regulate as well. And these people might feel dizzy, particularly when they come out of an inversion, right? So they they bring their head up, which can also happen in um, uh, camel pose. Mm. because your head is below the heart so uh you're getting so that the blood vessels will constrict they'll get smaller right and then you come up and so you can have a decrease shortly a decreased blood flow to the brain when you come up out of that but then guess what your your heart pumps faster uh your 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 blood vessels to the brain will will dilate or increase in size and they'll regulate that that blood flow to the brain so our body is doing a really good job of, of increasing, uh, of, uh, sorry, regulating blood flow to the brain and, uh, inversions won't increase blood flow and you wouldn't even want to increase blood flow. You know, there are conditions like vascular dementia, which is decreased blood flow to the brain. So that's, that's, uh, dementia that, that comes as a result of, of long-term decreased blood flow to the brain. And, uh, we know that exercise in general, challenging yourself physically, keeping physically active, can help uh, prevent Alzheimer's and dementia, right? So, you know, all the more reason to keep exercising, keep moving, get your required 150 minutes of vigorous, uh, 150 minutes of moderate intensity exercise, 75 minutes of vigorous exercise per week, plus two days of strength training. And that can include yoga, the two days of strength training. Those are the national guidelines for, uh, uh, pardon me, the international guidelines by the World Health Organization, by the UK government, the US government, and most governments have adopted these guidelines. 
So yeah, we should all be be keeping physically active, but sadly only one in five people do oh. meet these guidelines. And by not meeting those guidelines, you are dramatically increasing your risk of, like I said, dementia, you're increasing your risk of cardiovascular disease or heart disease, increasing your risk of cancer, uh, increasing your risk of depression, actually also. Uh, and then the, whereas the benefits of keeping physically active and moving and challenging your body are better sleep, better cognition or thinking, uh, you know, um, and then decreased chronic diseases of all those things that I, I mentioned before. So uh, it is an amazing gift that we have to share with others to be physically active mm. and, 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 you know, keep at it, you know, try to get off the sofa a little bit more and go for a walk, go for a run, you know, do some pull-ups, go to yoga, do whatever interests you. The best exercise is the one that gets done. Yeah. But the, the benefits of exercise are immense. And I think we need to do our best to share this message of, of, of moving and, and challenging ourselves because we do, we do definitely have a more sedentary culture, uh, a less active culture than we did 50 years ago, than we did 100 years ago. You know? So it is a, a problem that is then contributing to all kinds of health problems. Yeah. Sure so. In fact, um, when well, Dan Butner, who writes for um, National, works with National Geographic, and he wrote about the blue zones. One, aside from diet, I have very high plant-based diet, lots of uh, legumes uh, and vegetables. One of the things that um, was very clear that people that live longer to up to 100 um, move every day in one some kind of shape or form and doesn't have they don't even go to the gym i mean we're talking you know old generation they don't go lifting weights and stuff but they move every day whether it's functional movement by doing gardening or walking um or uh, being shepherds or uh, anything at all they just yeah. move and uh we don't do that in especially in cities we don't do that as much um I mean, I must say one thing, positive thing about London was that you kind of want to walk everywhere because um, the traffic is horrible. Why would you drive? But um, but if you don't, you know, if you are that kind of person that goes from your flat to the underground to the office and back home, then that reduces the walking a lot. And that can be a, such a shame because movement is so important, especially if you then have a job that restricts you to your desk. Um, and although now they're becoming much better with standing desks or even uh, um, treadmill desks like uh, Dr. Greger, um, yeah. it's, um, you know, it's not everybody that has that. And so we still have that very big uh, sitting culture um, that stops our body from being in the position that they were designed to be to begin with, because sitting long term is not really something natural for our body, um, which possibly takes us back to the first conversation about back pain. And why it is one of the biggest um, thing that we see in people, lower back pain, uh, partly because uh, our posture is not correct. You know, we're sitting long, long hours per day, and that's not really how we're designed to be. We're weakening our pelvic floor, um, our abs are basically not non-existent because you're like slumping <laughs> on your chair. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I don't mean So, that. yeah, so just to... to talk about that language a little bit. So interestingly, posture is not a predictor of back pain, right? So people can have all variety of postures. Yeah. People can have all variety of postures. And 
sitting is not a cause of back pain, but it's just that we don't do enough of the physical activity, right? So you can sit eight hours a day as long as you're getting up and moving frequently and then getting your you know, recommended weekly dose of exercise, um, then yeah, sitting doesn't have to be a bad thing. It's, it's not like um, smoking, which is very much going to increase your, your risk of lung cancer. It's not like sitting causes that. It's that if you're sitting, especially for long periods of time, then you're not doing something else. And also when, interesting, when you, when you do sit or you're, it puts your body into the state where cells be, become less receptive to insulin. Uh, so you increase your blood glucose and so you can get this, uh, this uh, increased risk of diabetes. So, uh, but then you break that up. If you just break up sitting by moving like once an hour, five minutes, then you uh, eradicate that effect. Hold on, we open we open Pandora's box. Okay, so um, <laughs> about posture. Uh, okay, so sitting per se not bad. Sitting long hours, problem. But what about the way you sit? Because not everybody's sitting straight with you know a nice long spine. People are like literally slumping. What what does that do? I would say not a problem. <laughs> really? If you are constantly changing your position, right? And that's the thing. Yeah. If you um, are moving around, you know, while you're sitting and not just being sat still for one position for a really long period of time. And then also you're getting to the gym or your yoga, your favorite yoga class, and you're strengthening the spinal extensors, right? Mm. Then it's okay to slump in the chair. It's really, it is not an inherently bad thing to slump into your chair, but there's a lot of benefit to strengthening the back muscles. And if you are always slumping in your chair, you're never giving the back muscles that chance to switch on and do the job that they, they're meant to do. And that's something I like to say at the beginning of the yoga class, you know, when, you're, when we're warming up into back bends, and I like to do active back bends. So in other words, you're, you're just contracting from the back muscles alone. And I'll say, notice how the back muscles feel. And they're, they're finally getting their chance to do the job that they're born to do. Mm. <laughs> Because, uh, and we, we can measure electrical and by sticking stickers on people's body or needles and it's called emg electromyography and you can you can uh measure the um electrical stimulus being sent from the central nervous system to that to that muscle so you can determine if the muscle is basically firing or not or at least the the, the nervous stimulus going to it and so we do find that when you do something in a chair your back muscles can pretty much switch off wow. right so it's not that the sitting causes the back pain. But again, because you're, you're sitting, you're not doing something else. But if you are doing that something else, so in other words, you are going to the gym and you're strengthening yourself and you're feeling really good in your body and you're getting your cardiovascular exercise and your balance requirements and all that stuff. But then you do still spend eight hours in a chair. That's okay. And it's okay if you slump too. I, I slumped a lot. <laughs> writing my book and my <laughs> dissertation. Um, so when and, does posture comes in, come in then? Yeah, well, that's a good question, you know? And posture is affected by a lot of things, including our emotional state, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you're, if you're feeling depressed, you're going to round your shoulders and be a little bit more slumped forward. You know, if you're happy, you can't help but sit tall, right? So posture is affected by... Um, 
by emotional factors like that. It's affected by structures in the body. Like I have a little bit of scoliosis in my, in my spine. So I'm going to always be slightly tilted to one side. Some people might have increased kyphosis, but the interesting thing, people with increased kyphosis or scoliosis, the research shows that they don't necessarily have more back pain than other people, mm -hmm. right? And this is only something that I've learned in the last year or so. And, and I used to teach on my anatomy teacher trainings, like how we need to teach people to stand taller, to not have hyperkyphosis. But actually, it's not correlated. It's not a predictor of back pain. So it, this is a very nuanced conversation. And I'm saying do strengthen your back muscles. Do strengthen your core muscles. Do try to improve your posture because it feels good. When you, when you stand up tall, right? At the same time, don't be afraid of something in the chair at the end of the day, if you're tired, and that's not going to kill you. <laughs> it's yeah. all about balance, isn't it? Yeah. And if and you I, are only yeah. slumping, if you're only slumping, then yeah, you need to get yourself to the gym and work out. If you are always only working out, you need to go chill out and slump in a yin yoga class or slump on the sofa, probably. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yoga, yeah, in a yoga class, you hardly slump, really. <laughs> well, yin... But yin yoga. Yin, well, it's still quite active. Is, I don't know. It's um, it's still it's, it's relaxing, but you don't just. I don't know. I actually never thought about it. If you just, I don't think you just slump. You open up, and but you act still active. You still, but still active, present. So I guess it depends on the the type of yin that you're teaching. But the the way Bernie Clark teaches yin yoga, and he's kind of credited as one of the the founders of yin yoga, along with others like. Paul Grilly and other names that I, I don't yeah. even remember, but they will, they will teach. If you read like the complete guide to yin yoga by Bernie Clark is that you should not activate muscles. So when you're doing seated forward fold, uh, which we call Paishimota, but Paishimotanasana, but in the yin world, they'll call caterpillar mm. and they, they give it a different name because they want you to realize you're not meant to engage the back muscles like you would in Paishimotanasana you are meant to slump forward. Ah. So the point is to actually not engage muscles. And again, there, there can be different styles of, of yin. Okay, yeah. right? But the point is to not engage muscles, um, at least in the Bernie Clark lineage, shall we say, um, and really let yourself actually slump into it. That is cool. I have done the wrong yin, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> <laughs> well, then you're maybe, but then they'll say that you're adding an element of yin, of yang, of engaging muscles, yeah. of firing muscles, right? Which is valid and, you know, you can do that too, but we can do it either way, right? Mm. Okay, slumping is good, check. Beautiful. Uh, well, see, I wouldn't even go that far. <laughs> Sometimes. I would say slumping is okay as long as you are staying healthy and you're doing all those yeah. things that we were talking about earlier from good nutrition to good sleep. And most importantly, especially as a movement um, professional myself moving a lot you know and yeah. that's my that's what i'm focused on exercising moving strengthening totally. your body not only totally. i mean i'm joking but i i yeah to me to me frankly yeah relaxing is totally fine but to me um when i said you know i i, I come from the world of banking um where i had to be seated long hours you know eight yeah. between eight and 12 sometimes and yeah. um I never felt natural to me, but now that I live 
in nature and I do gardening and, um, you know, I play with the dogs and I just, I just move my body all the time. It, it's so much more. I, it just feels like we were designed to move and not yeah. to stay still. So stillness is like, it's, uh, yeah, that, 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 you know a reward when you've done so much that you need a break and you need to rest and you want to just enjoy doing nothing but the way that we have adopted stillness physical stillness because our minds are never still um it's not um is is not really doing us any favor i don't think it's natural for us to be sitting for long hours uh, you know a day and again yes we can get up and move every hour but how many people do that because it's very easy to sit in front of your computer and literally not move for hours because emails keep on coming in uh tasks keep on coming in you have deadlines you're on the phone and the time just flies and so in theory yes practical i don't think it's done um i remember i was sitting next to two colleagues and um, they actually were my friends as well because we kind of all really liked fitness um, and Walt Disney, but uh, at the time, <laughs> so don't even go there. But um, I I remember we talked about, one of them came in, it's like, okay, we are going to get up every hour, I'm going to stretch. Cool. So every hour we got up and we just stretched and and we did it as like the, the three of us as a group and, and that, you know, felt good and made sense. But of course, um, it lasted a month and then we kind of slapped a little bit like, oh, oh slacked a little. Oh, we forgot to do it yesterday. Let's do it today. Yeah. Um, oh, we forgot to do it at times. Let's, we only did it twice. You know, it, again, it's all about really have it. And also we were the only three and everybody was looking at us like we were weird in the office. <laughs> so, yeah. um, but it was fun. And, and this really makes me think back. And this is why I, you know, um, from what I read and also what I see on myself, because I'm, I'm a very big ambassador for reading things and learning them, but then experiencing them. Um, and I, there's a saying that makes a lot of sense. Like you read something you don't remember. No, I tell you something you won't remember. I explain it to you. You'll understand. Um, and then you, you, you experience it and you'll totally get it. You know, like that's when it starts completely making sense even if you understand something it might not make sense fully because you haven't experienced it but when you do yeah it's like oh my gosh totally anyway <laughs> sorry and then the next answer. level then yeah. the next level when you, to really understand it to teach it to someone else yeah <laughs> yeah yeah exactly and yoga wow. is often described as uh it, it, that you can only get so far with the theoretical knowledge right you mm -hmm. can only get so far reading the texts of yoga and learning about the philosophy to, to actually reach enlightenment. It requires the practice of it. Yeah. <laughs> you need to practice these sitting in meditation or being absorbed by on, on one object, right. In order yeah. to, to reach that. So it's a practical thing. Oh, to, I know to, the rest that you should do yeah. off the mat. <laughs> that's yeah. what we fail most of the time. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, that's fun. Yeah. Um, thank you so much, Matt. I mean, I kept you for two hours, um, which was, was it two hours, oh two hours, and it's a great conversation. Oh my gosh, yeah. um, almost two hours. But it's um, this is that's what I mean. You know, before the the show, we talked about being organic. I mean, there are things that just flow, and um, yeah. and you know, it, it's a very interesting conversation. And I think I hope that this inspires people. Number one, to buy your book, which I'll link to the show notes, but also. Um, to kind of understand their body a little bit better because I think there is a, a wealth of benefits that come with um, understanding how 
your body should work and how it currently works and and really try and make changes that make you feel much more empowered in your own skin um, and you know feeling better per se not having pain it, it definitely boosts your um, your uh, confidence as well and how you react to situations to to others and um, I mean I, I'm studying the same exact things from the perspective of um, of nutrition and uh, herbalism and um, and so when I read your book it made a lot of sense in fact I you know I it's funny how I'm reading the chapters. I'm really looking forward. I'm much more of a per book person. So I'm looking forward to the hard copy um, mm. because I see a lot of my, in my, in my current books, you probably have seen my library behind me there, but uh, from, from the class that I, I just have so, uh, so many things that make more sense when they're connected to the yoga world because they're much more holistic. Yeah. So I'm actually looking forward to having those notes from your book into into my work in my studies yeah so yeah, thank great. you yeah well, i really hope you enjoy it yeah. I, I already did what i read um on the soft copies i'm now it's gonna be a lot of scribbling on the hard one <laughs> cool good and you know i think through learning about anatomy and physiology we can come to know ourselves better mm -hmm. you know because you can take your car to the mechanic so you don't need to know about cars right but you have to look after this body all throughout life. And yes, we can go to a doctor when we have our problem, but a doctor can only help. I mean, doctors study pathology. They study things that go wrong, mm -hmm. not how to thrive, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? So we all have this body to look after, to take care of, and to, to help us to thrive. So I think knowledge of the human body is necessary if you're human and you have a body. Yeah, <laughs> all of us, <laughs> pretty much. Thank you so much. This was really good. All right, good. thank you. All right, <laughs> thanks, Chantal. Thank, thank you. you. Bye. Bye. Thank you, Matt, and thank you, everyone, for staying on for the episode. I'm so proud of Matt for sharing this beautiful book, and I cannot tell you how wonderful this book is, and I hope you learned a lot from the episode, but if you can get yourself a copy, check out the show notes and get yourself one. Whether you teach yoga or you go to yoga or you do any sport, I've never read a book that talks about the body in such an easy to understand way and not boring at all. And so I hope you will enjoy as much as I did. And I, of course, if you enjoyed the episode, please do like it, share it, review it and help us grow. And I will see you next time.